Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Oakley. For today's interview recorded July 11, 2022, the first Monday of Stampede here in Calgary, we discussed the challenges of electrification and net zero grids and how these challenges are affecting energy security globally. Really pleased to have joined me from London, England is Catherine Porter. Catherine is an independent energy consultant and founder of Watt Logic. Prior to Watt Logic, Catherine worked in various roles in the UK energy industry, including Lucentrica Group, Societe Generale, EDF, and Barclays Capital. So pleased to have you on Energy Security Cube, Catherine. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Catherine, why don't you give us an idea of what uh, what Logic is, how you founded it, and what it does? Sure. Well, it's um, it's my own energy consulting business, which I founded pretty much by accident, really. Um, when I was in my last uh, conventional job, um, I got diagnosed with a health condition. Um, and to start off with, the medications I was given had worse side effects than the symptoms of the thing itself. Um, so I had the opportunity to take VR um, and I thought I'd take maybe six months off. It was kind of arbitrary, but um, thought it would be good to take some time, sort out the medical stuff. Um, and so while I was doing that, I decided to set up a blog, um, partly because I didn't want people to forget who I was. Um, and partly because it, I wanted to have the chance to think about the types of topics in energy that were in the back of my mind, but I didn't really have the time to think about properly when I was in the everyday, you know, doing my job thing. Um, and I wanted to do something a bit different with my blog. Um, a lot of people that write about energy, um, it's kind of a bit lacking in substance. So I wanted to be pretty data-driven. Um, and as I've gone on, I've got more confident with um, expressing opinions, um, but I try and make sure those opinions are grounded in data. Anyway, when I got to the end of my kind of six month um, gap, I'd already started getting approached to do consulting work for people. Um, and it just went from there. It's a bit of a surprise still because I have a social media led energy consulting business, which wasn't something I ever expected. Um, it is the it is the medium of the of today and the, and the recent you know the near midterm I think and even longer term I think that and commendable to you know at our think tank we deal in peer reviewed uh, real uh, information such that it can be backed up with fact and or data and uh, it sounds like you're doing that too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's pretty important. A lot of people say stuff about energy um, and it's just their opinion and they haven't maybe looked into it that well. Um, and it leads to a lot of misconceptions. And it's particularly dangerous when you see the direction of travel with energy policy now and how it's threatening energy security. A lot of it comes back to that, that people haven't really been enough on top of the details and, and the fundamentals of how the system needs to work. Um, and I try and have that guide me in the way that I approach my blogging. And then a lot of my businesses just come from that. People have seen stuff I've written on my blog um, and they've reached out and, and hired me to do work for them. Wonderful. In a recent blog post about the issues plaguing the electricity market in Australia, um, Australia has always struck me as a stable energy, well, it's a continent, but it's all really an island, with abundant supplies of coal, natural gas, and also renewables. Give us a quick overview of why Australia has been having issues lately. I think it's a combination of things and it kind of reflects some of the trends that we're seeing around the world at the moment. 
So first of all, um, it's worth noting that despite all of those abundant energy resources, a lot of them are destined for exports, either because of specific policy choices that have been made or because domestic users have just got to compete with international buyers. And that dynamics pushed up the price of fuel in the Australian market and is the immediate cause of the troubles they've had recently. So the electricity market there has got a cap system which limits the price that generators can offer their energy into the market. The cap was originally set 20 years ago when the market was set up and until recently it just hadn't been updated since so it's pretty out of date. And then in the last few months when you saw fuel prices um, going up so much it reached a point where the cap was being breached and generators started withholding capacity since they didn't want to run at a loss. Um, and then there's some particular um, specifics about how uh, the dispatching rules in the market work that made it worse. So under certain conditions, a plant has to be fully dispatched before another plant can run. Um, and that's difficult for generators that have got limited fuel stocks like hydro, for example, where they want to keep their capacity for times when the prices are highest. And that's a, you know, a totally reasonable strategy. A hydro plants can probably only run for a few hours before it's got to pump the water back up. Um, it's going to do the pumping at night when it's cheapest, but it might want to split its running time during the day over the periods when the demand is highest and the price is the highest. So that also makes sense for the, for the system as a whole. You get a similar dynamic with coal, but obviously not so strongly because you don't run out of stock and refill it with coal as quickly. But because coal prices have been really high and deliveries have been under threat, coal operators were also trying to manage their stocks. Um, and then on top of that, there were concerns that some of the generator behavior was just basically less reasonable. Um, there's a common problem with centrally dispatched markets, which is the generators might not be truthful when they're submitting their costs um, in an effort to exercise market power and maximize revenues. And that becomes more likely in the context of the energy transition where governments have basically told generators that their days are numbered and that provides a strong incentive to short-term profit maximization. Right. Um, and so all of those behaviors together um, contributed to the problem that happened. It was a mixture of high prices and poor market design um, where you had this all or nothing situation for generators. But then there's the longer term cause and that's the, um, the energy transition itself and the way those policies have been implemented. Um, and we're seeing that in a lot of parts of the world. So policymakers have been really keen to move away from conventional generation to renewables. And when the amount of renewables is quite low, you can pretty much add more without worrying about the effects on the system. But once you get to a certain level of penetration, the performance of the whole electricity system changes. And conventional generation sees much, much lower running hours and it starts being uneconomic for that plant to stay in the market. So but that's but that, that's a real catch twenty two because if you don't have those dispatchable power that dispatchable power, renewables don't work all the time. Like you, you made the the uh, connection of uh, pumped storage, high hydro, yeah. Like interesting, but if it's if you're trying to trying to to keep the lights on and the renewables aren't there, the dispatchable has to be there. And yeah, and that's I mean, this is a quandary. Point. Like I, this is global, and the, the, I, I just don't see how the how governments continue to see this train coming down the tracks like it's seriously i, I it's it is a big problem it's a huge problem and i don't understand what and i suppose it comes back to what i said earlier about people not getting enough into the details and thinking about the market fundamentals now electricity markets are complicated um and you look at who's making these decisions in government you know 
in Britain that we don't have an energy ministry. We've got a business um, energy and industrial strategy uh, ministry. So it's a really broad remit. Um, and you really need people focusing on this because it's complicated and right. important. Um, and so they get sold this message by the renewables lobbies that, you know, renewables are brilliant. And, you know, there was a really popular argument that it's always going to be windy somewhere. Well, that's really been debunked in Europe in the past year. We had last September two weeks and it just wasn't windy anywhere. You know, across northern Europe, it just wasn't windy. Everybody wanted to import at the same time. Um, and so those arguments have really been shown up now for, for the weakness. Um, and the fact that all these conventional uh, plants have been exiting is causing stress in a lot of markets. It's not just here in Britain or in Australia. There's different markets in the US that are struggling. We're seeing it quite a lot in Europe as well. Um, and, you know, Germany, for example, is, is reopening all its old coal plants. Um, for this exact reason, you cannot build an electricity system based on renewables unless you've got proper storage. And that, for the most part, unless you've got a lot of hydro, it just doesn't exist. Yeah, well, staying with Australia for a quick second, and I uh, plead ignorance because it leads into my next question. But are the states in Australia not, is the, 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 does the Crown not control electricity generation like it does in Saskatchewan and Ontario and or are they is it free is it a free market system for electrical generation for so that uh, depends where in australia that you some are. states are some aren't yeah so so what we've been really talking about is the um, the national electricity market of australia which covers i think it's six different states but i think western australia still has crown utilities um but they weren't the ones with the problems recently right. that we, where we heard about market suspension that was in the in the nem um, so different regions of Australia are run in a different way. So, you know, as we've discussed here, getting going is that this is really a global issue. And in last week, the French government announced that they'd be fully nationalizing the embattled French utility EDF. The apparent reason being that nationalization is a need for strong, radical decisions, and I quote, and maintaining control of France's energy future. Give us an overview of some of the issues plaguing EDF and how do you think nationalization, what, 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 does this help resolve issues, like in your opinion? Um, well, EDF is experiencing some fairly significant financial problems. Um, so I guess full nationalization makes sense in terms of preventing the company from collapsing. And we've seen nationalizations and bailouts of energy companies in other countries as well in the last year. So in Britain last year, the government took over one of the large energy retailers. And right now, the German government's considering nationalizing Uniper. Right. So it won't fail. Yeah, I read that last exactly. on the weekend. Yeah. So I think, you know, when it comes to shoring up um, a company whose failure might have a harmful impact on the market, then obviously nationalization is, um, is a good way to do that. And it, and it prevents that short term um, sort of contagion impact that it might have. Um, in the case of EDF, you could say that the company structure didn't really make sense to begin with anyway. Um, in, it was still 85% owned by the French state, um, and it had been forced into the partial privatisation back in 2005 because of the EU pressure to open up the French energy market to non-domestic competition. Um, and at that time, it was, it's interesting, the unions were really worried that well, their generous benefits would be at risk and that there might be um, you know, uh, headcount cuts because the labour force was considered to be fairly bloated. Um, and it's pretty ironic that the unions are now really worried about the impacts of renationalization and they're worried the company might be broken up and that their jobs and benefits will be at risk again. So um, if you look at why EDF's in this problem, 
part of it is internal and part of it's external. So internally, they've um, identified a serious systemic issue with the cooling systems of some classes of their nuclear reactors. Um, about half of the French nuclear fleet is now offline while these problems are being investigated. Um, and the nuclear regulator in France thinks it's going to be a few years before this is fully resolved. The impact of that is that not only is EDF got to spend time and money identifying and fixing the problem, but it's also got to buy electricity in the market instead of generating itself. And that's expensive because nuclear is a pretty cheap form of energy when it comes to production, you know, once you've spent the capital costs. Um, and at the moment, electricity prices across Europe are really high because they're driven by gas prices. Um, so in order to supply its customers, EDF is having to buy in the market at a much higher cost than it would be paying for generating itself. On top of that, you've got external factors. Um, so there's, there's a long-term thing, which is where there are some complicated rules in the French market to try and encourage some level of competition um, and to sort of immunize the market against EDF's otherwise monopolistic position. So EDF is forced to sell a certain amount of electricity to its competitors at a regulated tariff, um, and that costs the company money. Um, and now more recently, the government's also imposed a cap on prices to protect consumers from the effects of the current situation. So that also makes it harder for EDF to recover its costs. Um, and then looking more strategically, EDF had a 10 year gap when it wasn't really progressing any new um, nuclear projects, new build projects. So there was a lot of de-skilling of the labor force in that time. And now it seems to have tied itself to a technology that really doesn't seem to work. Um, and so, it's not obvious really how you know what the future holds for EDF it's got to fix its existing reactors it's got to come up with a strategy for the future that actually makes sense based on technologies that work um and I think that's going to be quite a big challenge for the company I don't think by itself nationalization doesn't solve those problems um restructuring the company will be hard because France is highly unionized um, and so you'd expect the obvious targets would be its overseas operations. Um, and it really casts more doubt on things like the Sizewell Sea project in the UK. I think that's much less likely to go ahead. Yeah, this is a quandary. I, uh, you know, I, how, how, in your opinion, how did, is this just an, the overarching uh, future view that France took of the way they would generate electricity? Because you know, after the first OPEC oil crisis in 1973, France became, they went 100, almost 100% nuclear, that they made a decision, and, and it has stood them in good stead here for 40 years, but here we are, and, and why, is, why have the, the recommissions or retrofits of these plants not happened? Well, I think probably the answer to that question is complacency. EDF seems to have quite a big problem with quality control. Um, it's pretty astonishing that its steel suppliers were able to perpetrate a fraud for about two decades and supply substandard steel. Oh. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the direct impact of that is that it had to take all its reactors offline a few years ago to test them to make sure that these, um, the excess carbonization in the steel wasn't going to be um, causing structural issues. And they've been instructed to replace the, um, the vessel lid at Flamonville which they were given seven years to do. And it now looks as if the seven years will run out before the plant even opens to begin with. So they were hoping it would get some running in before they had to do that. And now it looks like it maybe won't. This is just complacency. I mean, the regulators keep rejecting their wells on Flamonville. 
I, I don't understand why if you're a, supposedly an expert in building nuclear power stations you can't make compliant welds you know that makes no sense to me so the, I yeah, think it's been a it's it's an in, that's an interesting comment because as most a lot of my listeners will know I'm a welder by I have a trade and welded for a living when I was a young guy and uh, either your welds make it or you don't and if you don't you get some they get another welder yeah <laughs> exactly not, I mean it's not like it's a new thing that's only just been invented that they're trying to get their heads around having said that um, if the if the steel is if the steel is uh, is deficient it doesn't matter how good a welder you are. It, it doesn't work like it, you know, you, I, so I can see that, that there, there isn't, there's a, a underlying issue here, but I, we're getting down in the weeds a bit. Um, yeah. And that's great. And I, also I, they should be doing quality control on the steel. Yes, I mean, right that's like, you know, yeah, you, who you, isn't you, sampling and sending off for analysis. I, right. that's, I just don't get that. So I, I don't, I don't really have sympathy um, in that sense. I, where I have more sympathy is I think that after Fukushima, the regulators all went a little bit crazy and became too conservative. Um, and, you know, that sounds like a weird thing to say that nuclear safety is too strict, but I think of it like this, you know, you might want to build a house with three meter thick walls because it will be less um, vulnerable to earthquakes, but it doesn't mean it's a sensible thing to do. Right. And, um, and so I think that some of the regulations have gone too far and possibly there need to be a bit of rollback um, to, you know, reduce the level of the engineering challenge to something that's a bit more reasonable. You recently talked in a webinar about the various hidden costs of renewable energy. And let's change gears here a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think that people, you know, if, you, if you're in the weeds about energy, you understand some of these things. But I think that a lot of listeners won't understand that. And could you go over some of these costs and how they're generally hidden in usual energy cost comparisons in an, in a, in an effort to, you know, to convince the world that we can have all this electricity or other energy in renewables? Yeah, I mean, sure. People talk about renewable energy as being cheap. And to most people, that sounds reasonable, right? Because, you know, the wind and the sun are free. Um, but you can see that since we started um, with this whole energy transition and bringing more renewables into the system, the price that end users are paying has gone up steadily. You know, and, and I did some charts of this in, in the UK markets, and you can see from, from 2000, the end user prices have just gone up really consistently. And then you look at what's happened with wholesale gas and electricity prices, and they've kind of wibbled around with no particular trend over time. Obviously, they've gone up a lot recently, but, you know, when you look across the two decades, there's no, there's no real um, correspondence between the trend in wholesale prices and, and what end users are paying. And the question is, well, why, if renewable generation is so cheap, are consumers paying more for their energy as we add more renewables into the system? And that's because of these hidden costs that you mentioned. So first of all, a lot of renewable energy is still subsidized. Um, in, in many places, solar power is now being built without subsidy, but wind still needs subsidies to cover the capital costs. And that's despite the technology being pretty mature now. I mean, right. it's been over 20 years since we started the renewables obligation, which wasn't even our first big subsidy scheme for wind in the UK. Um, and it still needs um, subsidies for the capital costs. And that's interesting actually, because turbine manufacturers are losing money. It's been all over the press recently that turbine manufacturers are really struggling. So it's interesting that we see frontline subsidy costs falling in places like the UK, you know, with the subsidy auctions clearing at lower prices. But we're seeing manufacturers in financial distress, which suggests to me that the capital costs actually are not falling in the way that those bidding patterns in the subsidy auctions suggest. 
And it does also make me wonder where all the money is going to. Um, but in any case, the consumers pick up the tab for those subsidies. And because they're cumulative over time, even if recent subsidies have lower costs, the total amount consumers are paying is still going up because the contracts last 10 or 15 years or whatever it is in different markets. And consumers just have to keep paying for that until the contracts finish. Um, then the next problem is that a lot of the renewable generation is being built in places that don't currently have good grid infrastructure. So we've got a lot of offshore wind in the UK and you know, pretty obviously we didn't already have an offshore electricity network. So consumers are paying to have that new network infrastructure um, built. And that's true in a lot of markets. If you look at places like Texas and California, they've got plans for new multi-billion dollar transmission projects to address those, those exact problems. And then because those transmission investments haven't kept pace with the need, uh, constraint costs have been going up. So if a renewable generator only gets its subsidy when it actually delivers electricity to the grid, but it can't deliver the electricity to the grid because the system operator can't move it to where the demand is, and it gets turned down by the system operator, then that generator needs to be compensated for the lost subsidy payment. And in the end, consumers have to pay that compensation. Um, and then consumers have also got to pay for backup generation. So we talked about that earlier when it's not windy or sunny. Um, in Britain, the sun sets before the winter evening peak, um, and we can have days or even weeks where there's minimal wind output. Um, so, you know, you can't cover that with batteries. Um, you need some much bigger bulk storage, which doesn't exist. Um, certainly not in Britain. We don't have enough hydro that you could manage that. Um, and so we have a capacity market that pays conventional generators to be available to step in in those times. And those capacity payments make up for the fact that their running hours have gone down because of renewables coming into the system. Um, and you know, that means consumers end up paying two or three times to cover the same amount of demand. They, they pay the subsidies for renewable generation, they pay capacity payments for conventional generation, and then they pay constraint payments when the renewable generation can't generate. And then finally, um, because so much of the generation is now intermittent and the output changes from moment to moment because the cloud goes in front of the sun or there's some wind speed changes, it's just harder and more expensive to keep supply and demand balanced in real time. Um, and supply and demand have to be balanced in real time because of the way the electricity grids work. You know, the grids just become unstable and equipment starts disconnecting if supply and demand go out of balance because the voltage becomes unstable. Um, and eventually you can get supply interruptions to customers. Um, so it's not like a nice to have, it's necessary for the operation of the system. And all of those things together, they basically comprise those hidden costs that we were talking about. And there's one other interesting thing, which is how electricity prices are set in the market in the first place. So in most markets, the electricity price is the price of the most expensive generator that's needed to meet demand, which tends to be a thermal plant. So renewable generators, even though it might be almost nothing, cost almost nothing for them to produce electricity in the moment, um, they get paid the same price as the gas generator that's needed to meet that last megawatt of demand. Um, and so consumers just don't get the benefit of the fact that the wind right. and the sun is, is free, that that never feeds through. And the British government's actually looking into this at the moment, whether they should change the basis on which some of um, the electricity prices are set. Um, but, you know, it, it simply all of that means that consumers are just paying more and more for their um, electricity, despite the fact that you've got all of this, you know, supposedly free generation. 
you know, I really encourage everyone to follow uh, Catherine and read her blogs because she's got some strong opinions. And let's turn to your home country now and uh, electri electricity and energy choices that have been made in the United Kingdom over the past couple of decades have set the table here and it isn't pretty. Um, something you have noted in, is that the issues in the UK are not related to fuel supply since the UK has lots of coal and natural gas import capacity, even at high prices. You point out instead that winter electricity generation capacity is the issue. Can you expand on that, please, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I'm really worried about capacity margins for this winter. Last winter, we had a capacity margin of 3.9 gigawatts, which was lower than it had been for a long time. Um, and our peak winter demand is somewhere in the region of, well, our normal winter demand is around 55 gigawatts, so that you kind of put that in some context. Um, since last winter, we've lost two gigawatts of nuclear power, it's just closed, um, and between 1.6 and 2 gigawatts of coal is closing. And then because of the problems in France, instead of importing 3 gigawatts, we're probably going to be exporting 3 gigawatts. Um, so that just wipes out all of the spare margin that we had last year. Um, and we could also see Norway cutting off exports and that would be another 1.4 gigawatts that we'd lose. Um, the government signed deals to keep the oldest and dirtiest coal power stations open. So that's about two gigawatts of capacity that's going to stay available as reserve. And it was interesting that they were previously buying their coal from Russia um, and they're now going to be buying, um, as I understand it, from South Africa. Um, but again, access to the coal isn't seen as the problem here. Um, it's probably going to be more expensive, but we should still be able to get it. And the government just seems to be very fixated on gas. Um, it's really worried that we won't have enough gas. And I, I disagree. I think we'll be able to get gas. I just think it's going to be expensive, but I think we can still get it. But because it's so worried about gas, um, it's focusing on non-gas um, capacity for the market. We actually have two large gas power stations in mothballs at the moment that could come back um, to support capacity margins. Well, and that but wouldn't that wouldn't be that big of a capital expenditure or take very long either, right? Like that's just not. It's fairly simple to put a gas well, plant back. They've, they've been out of the market for a little while, um, it's like two or three years now, I think. So it would be some months of work, I would imagine, to um, to get them ready. Um, and we're running out of time for that now. Obviously, winter's not that far away. Um, but, you know, I could imagine that they could be back before the, the highest, you know, the coldest parts of the winter, December, January, February time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, to me, it's a no-brainer. The idea that you wouldn't try and get as much capacity as you possibly could um, back to the market for this winter um, seems really short-sighted. And, you know, we're hearing reports that National Grid is trying to work with the retailers to get them to maybe help with demand reduction, um, you know, maybe from the domestic portfolio, but we really don't have the systems in place for that. So I think that's going to have a pretty minimal impact. I think the only real lever is um, rationing for industrial consumers. And I think that's actually pretty likely. Yeah, another leg on the recession stool, right, of the global recession that people are talking about. This is, yeah, we've got a long way to go here. Um, you also discuss uh, risks for European energy and the Europe writ large in the possibility that Norway could cut off electricity imports or therefore exports to Northern Europe. Um, as a major producer of hydroelectric power, Norway currently has the capacity to ex export several gigs to the UK, Germany, and Denmark. Um, 
could you explain to the listeners why Norway could possibly curtail exports? Sure. So um, most most people, when they're exporting, they don't. There's no concept that they're going to run out of electricity that they can export. You know, in Britain, we generate electricity mostly from gas. Um, we don't have gas storage really. We get the gas just in time right. it comes through pipes or from LNG or from the North Sea, um, and it just goes to the power stations and we generate electricity. Like Alberta. Yeah, but in Norway, uh, it's coming from hydro. And once that water runs out, then it's gone until it rains or um, it gets refilled with snow melts. There's almost no pumping capacity in Europe, in Norway. They've got three gigawatts of hydro and only 1.4 gigawatts of that has pumping. And some of that pumping is can only be done seasonally because they've got some complicated coupling thing for the pumps. So it's not like they can just turn them on and off. Um, so with Norway, it's a completely different picture felt than it is with other markets when they're looking at uh, cross-border trading. And the way cross-border trading works is all depending on day-ahead prices, pretty much. And that doesn't take account of whether you might run out of water next month or, or later on. It's literally in that moment for the next day, do we think, you know, what are the, what are the relative power prices between the markets? Norwegian hydro levels now are close to 20-year lows. Um, the uh, reservoirs got quite significantly depleted last year, and this year they're having a dry year. So the water levels just aren't uh, recovering. Um, and the theory was that Norway would be able to use cheap wind imports from Britain and other countries that would displace its own need to use water. But that just simply hasn't happened in practice. Most of the time, Norway's prices are cheaper and therefore the power just gets sucked out of Norway into the other markets. Um, we're seeing that some regions of Norway have had have, their wholesale prices have gone up by a factor of 10 in the last year. Wow. And the government is now subsidizing end users to up to 80% of their bills. So it's become really quite politically contentious. Um, the Norwegian government has set up an energy commission to look into the issue, and it's that's due to report back in December. Um, and Statnet, the system operator, there's already um, warning that there could be rationing this winter. So, you know, my view on this is that Statnet should declare an emergency, uh, say that its hydro levels are too low and that it's going to curtail export capacity. Um, it potentially could do that within the current market rules. But to be honest, Europe and the EU is so desperate for Norwegian gas. I think that Norway can pretty much do whatever it likes on electricity without causing any penalties. I and mean, Norway has all the market power right now. Um, and they really should be protecting their own citizens because at the end of the day, they're paying for um, the poor energy choices of other countries. You know, if Britain, Germany and the Netherlands haven't invested enough in their own domestic capacity, that should be their problem, not Norway's problem. The realism of energy security is really coming to the fore in all global markets. You know, you've covered, you've covered the globe for us here, Catherine, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you've given our listeners a really good understanding of some of the vagaries and, and uh, complications and challenges of the electrical grids globally. And I, we, we only touched on infrastructure and build outs of these large transmission systems. I can, you know, there's always the NIMBY problem. Um, you know, California can talk all they want about how they're going to do that, but it's not easy to do anything anymore. And I think that this is also a global issue. And I look forward to having you on again sometime and, uh, and we'll talk about some of those things. Catherine, it's been a wonderful uh, discussion about electrical markets, and we thank you. But we have one more question. As we always ask our, uh, our guest, what are you reading today? 
Uh, all right. Well, it's a bit of a challenge at the moment to find the time to read anything that's not relating to work. Right. Um, I've just finished Meredith Angwin's excellent book, Shorting the Grid, which I really recommend to anyone that wants to get some insights into how poor policies are undermining uh, resilience in electricity systems. Um, otherwise, I'm trying to find the time to read a biography of Queen Mary, who was the grandmother of our current Queen Elizabeth, um, who's always struck me as being a very interesting woman. Yes, um, she is. So I'm kind of dipping in and out of this book when I find the time. Yeah, she had a lot of uh, as a as the queen mother or the, yeah that that would be the wife of George the fifth, right? Fifth, that's right. Yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, an interesting time after Edward the seventh, and uh, the period up to when the abdication happened um, was as that period from to nineteen eleven to nineteen thirty five. Is that about right? She was born in the nineteenth century, so she really sort of saw that transition from the Victorian age into the modern world, or what we sort of see as the modern world. Um, she died um, between the, the sort of the Queen's accession and her coronation. And so she saw a huge amount of change and she was really at the, um, the forefront of seeing how the royal family needed to change um, in response to the changes in society. So she was a, a real moderniser as far as the royal family was concerned, which kind of sounds a bit weird to people because they don't think the royal family necessarily is that modern. But if you think that Queen Mary was born in Victorian times, and could have stayed as a Victorian person, um, then, um, you know, yeah, I think she was quite remarkable and I'm enjoying the biography. Great. Thanks again, Catherine, for coming on my podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.